When the judiciary constitutionalizes its policy preferences, what tools do the people have uh, when they oppose those judicial policy preferences? At the federal level, only a constitutional amendment is possible, a process that is purposely designed to be it require extraordinary consensus among the several states. At the state level, however, a vast majority of states afford their citizens a broad toolkit uh, to uh, address oligarchic judicial usurpation, including judicial elections in about 40 states, and plebiscitic direct democracy tools such as initiative and referenda. In recent years, we've witnessed a substantial increase in the utilization of these plebiscitic tools. According to my research, in response to the Massachusetts Supreme Court's Goodridge decision, recognizing the right uh, for same-sex couples to marry, some 23 states passed constitutional amendments to ensure that their own state Supreme Courts uh, could not follow uh, Massachusetts' lead. Similarly, in Kelo, the Supreme, U.S. Supreme Court held that the government could constitutionally take property of one private citizen and give it to another private citizen to promote economic development. Forty-two states uh, since have enacted laws to protect against such takings, and some, like Michigan, uh, uh, did so by constitutional initiative. Finally, in response to the United States Supreme Court decision in Grutter, which permitted the use of race in law school admissions, Michigan citizens passed a constitutional initiative barring affirmative action uh, by the government. Similar anti-affirmative action initiatives were successful previously in California and Washington State, and currently uh, such uh, initiatives are uh, currently pending in Arizona, Colorado, Wisconsin, Nebraska, Oklahoma, and Missouri. Our panel uh, this morning has uh, been challenged to consider the wisdom and legitimacy of such direct democratic responses to unpopular uh, judicial decisions. I'm going to introduce all three of the panel members and allow them to make their opening statements following which uh, uh, we'll open it up to the, um, uh, to the floor for questions. Uh, Mr. Ward Connolly is the founder of the American Civil Rights Institute and is one of the nation's leading opponents of affirmative action. Mr. Connolly uh, could also be considered the high priest of initiatives having successfully sponsored anti-affirmative action initiatives in California, uh, the state of Washington, and most recently in Michigan. Professor Sherman Clark is a graduate of Towson State University and Harvard Law School. He's not to be faulted for that. (laughs) He practiced uh, in Washington, D.C. with Kirkland and Ellis. He's uh, been a member of the University of Michigan Law School faculty since 1995, and he teaches uh, courses on torts, evidence, and sports law. His current research examines the ways in which uh, legal rules and institutions can serve to uh, serve as fora for the uh, construction of uh, community character. He has written on the uh, inefficacies of direct democracy tools such as referenda. Our final panelist is Professor uh, Hamilton. Uh, Professor Hamilton is a graduate of Vanderbilt University and the University of Penn Law School. 
she is the Paul Arthur Keel uh, Chair in Public Law at the Benjamin N. Cardozo School of Law. Professor Hamilton is a leading scholar on church-state First Amendment law and an expert on federalism and representation. She clerked for uh, Justice O'Connor. Uh, the uh, uh, Professor Clark won the coin, pregame coin toss, and he will lead us off. Professor Clark? Okay, good morning. Good morning. Thank you. Um, I'm going to make a particular and focused point about direct democracy. Uh, I'll apologize, apologize if I seem to be changing the subject a tiny bit, as my point contrasts the plebiscite, the initiative, with legislative outcomes, but also has strong, serious implications for the way we think about the judicial treatment of direct democratic results. The point is straightforward. It's this. We should not assume, we should not claim that a referendum result, an initiative result, represents the will of the people, that the people have spoken. We hear that. Let the people decide. The people have spoken. And I'm going to suggest that that's not, in fact, the case, that we are more likely to have betrayed the will of the people when we decide a high-profile, controversial issue through direct democracy. Now, how can that be? The first step is to recognize that more direct is not always more clear or better. We feel when we vote in a direct, direct democratic process, when we vote in an initiative, that we are speaking more directly, that the will of the people is being heard more clearly and accurately because it's being heard directly, not through a complicated and difficult mediating device like the legislature. In fact, a mediating device is not always obscure but can help us see what we couldn't otherwise see. A telescope is a mediating device, but it helps us see things we couldn't otherwise see. And it can help us communicate. A translator is a mediating device. If we're trying to negotiate a treaty with someone who speaks a different language, we're trying to negotiate a treaty with someone who speaks a different language, and we feel as though this mediating device is, is interfering with our communication, but in fact it's enabling our communication. We would not get rid of the translator in favor of a direct communication that, because we speak different languages, precluded us from saying much of what we wanted to say. I believe that the legislative process, as messy and as frustrating as it can be, is in many ways just like that. And that direct democracy, although it feels like we're being able to speak more clearly, is in fact preventing us from saying much of what we want to say. So first, the point I'm making is not this. It is not that direct democracy fails to capture the will of the people because it's imperfect, because voter turnout is spotty or because some issues may not be clearly understood by all voters or because insufficient deliberation may have gone into the crafting of ballot issues. That's not my point. Those are good points, and I hope we get a chance to talk about those. That's not my point. I want to assume that we could conduct an initiative perfectly, that everyone could vote, that everyone could understand exactly what they were voting for, that the issue was crafted with perfect clarity, and that we get a clear majority 
in favor of one outcome or another. That is the context in which we would be most tempted to say, well, that's it. The people, the people have spoken. But in fact, I think they haven't. In fact, I think they have spoken more clearly through the legislative process. And let me, say, let me tell you how that works, how I believe that works. It doesn't feel that way to you. When you vote for a candidate, you have at most two choices, or uh, several, a few choices, usually two, at most a few. And none of those candidates represent your views on the full range of issues. You're forced to choose between candidates, none of whom actually feel the way, uh, represent you precisely on a full range of issues. So what are you forced to do? You're forced to make tough decisions. You're forced to, to think about what is most important to you. You're forced to, in effect, trade off. You say, these issues are, are most important to me. This candidate at least represents me on those issues. So I will choke back the fact that he or she has opinions I don't favor on these other issues, and I will cast my vote for him or her rather than the other candidate. And that feels as though you're being restricted in your ability to communicate your will. That's why it feels so good to be able to vote directly on a specific issue, feeling like now you've been, you've been clearly heard. But in fact, let's think about what's going on in that process where, through which you are forced to pick and choose between issues. Let's assume that our only goal is to hear the voice of the people as clearly as possible. That's the assumption that most favors using direct democracy, that most favors using an initiative, that that's our priority. Let's set aside for the moment concerns about constitutional rights or deliberation or other substantive issues. Let's assume all we care about, the main thing we care about, is hearing the voice of the people as clearly and as well as we can. Well, absent unanimity, we have a problem. The people do not speak in one voice, sort of hallelujah chorus, together. We have lots of different people who want lots of different things, and not everyone can ever be satisfied. That's a problem. So how do we solve that problem? We try to give as many people as we can, as much as we can, of what they want. We try to give as many of the people as we can as much opportunity to get their views represented as possible. And so the candidates do that. They realize that this group of people here has a strong concern about this particular issue. Might be gay marriage, might be affirmative action. They have other concerns too. They have concerns on tax policy and environmental policy, all sorts of things. But they, they most care about this particular issue. And so they say, I will vote for a candidate who at least supports me on that issue. Abortion, one way or the other, would be another excellent example. And in effect, trade off, give up those other issues in order to get at least some of what they want. And everyone has to do that. That's what that frustration is when we vote and don't find the ideal candidate. That is the necessity, I would say, the opportunity for us to express not just what we want on this issue and that, but what we want most, what our priorities are. The legislative process measures not just preferences, but priorities as between issues, and thus gives us a richer view of the popular will, having heard not just what you want on this issue and what you want on that issue, but also what's most important to you. You've been given a chance to say more 
Doesn't feel like it. Feels like we're not listening. We're listening. You've been given a chance to say more than you could otherwise say by being allowed, indeed required, to pick which issues matter to you most. So that's what happens with a legislative outcome. We have a, a representative system which gives as many people as possible as much as possible of what they want. Now, what happens with an initiative? Think about it. The majority on that particular issue has already indirectly traded off that issue in return for getting much, indeed most, of what they want on other issues, right? They've gotten, by virtue of being in the majority, most of their preferences, many of their preferences enacted. The cost of that in a democracy where we're trying to give as many people as much as possible of what they want, where we're trying to hear the popular will as fully as, as is possible, the result of that is that even those in the majority have had to give up a few things. The things that weren't most important, if they were most important to them, they would have made them priorities when they cast a vote and they would have gotten their way. But they weren't the most important things to them. Other things were more important. The economy, economic issues were more important to them. Maybe environmental issues, maybe issues about the character of the candidate who represents them were more important to them when they cast a vote. So they got most of those things, but they traded off. They gave up a few little things to other groups of people, people in the minority who had certain issues that were particularly important to them. They gave those up in this legislative process. And then they have an initiative and they take that too. They betray the implicit deal that they made through their representatives. The deal through which they got most of what they want and gave up a little something that was particularly important to a group, that process through which we tried not just to hear each person but all of us as clearly and as fully as possible, that resulted in the minority group getting not much of what they want, not most of what they want, but at least a few things that were most important, that they were willing to make electoral priorities. The majority, they then have an initiative and they take that too. It doesn't feel like that. They don't feel like, let's betray the deal. Because the deal was implicit. It didn't feel like a deal. It felt like a frustrating legislative process. So they pat themselves on the back and they say, oh, the voice of the people has been heard. The people have spoken. Let the people decide. The people decided. The people decided in the best way we know how which is a representative system that tries to hear as much as possible of what a broad and diverse group of people want and give as many of them as possible, at least what's most important to them if we can. The people have spoken. So when a numerical majority decides to say, you know what we're going to do now, we're going to take the rest of it and pat themselves on the back about it, I don't think we should feel good about that. I don't think we should defer to that. I don't think we can, should congratulate ourselves on how democratic we've been. Maybe we need to make some decisions through direct democratic processes, just as we sometimes need to make some decisions through administrative processes. There are a lot of different ways to make different decisions. So if there are particular arenas in which the legislative process is not capable of addressing the issue, Term limits may be a nice example where we just can't expect 
a legislative body to handle that for us. Maybe we need to use direct democracy, just as when there are highly technical issues that are ill-suited to the legislative process, we may use a specialized administrative agency. But we don't pat ourselves on the back and say that's the voice of the people, and nor should we in the case of, in the case of direct democracy. I'll stop. Thanks. Thank you. Professor Hamilton. Good morning. I'm very impressed with how many people are willing to come out on a cold Saturday morning. So uh, I think we'll have an interesting enough panel to make it worthwhile, that's for sure. Uh, I'm going to piggyback a little bit on Sherman's comments and then expand them uh, to a couple of cases. And let me just start out by saying that uh, the title of the panel uses the term popular, as though popular means that the people have been either uh, approving of what's happened, or the people have been involved, or a majority is approving of the result. And I think that all of those are potentially misleading in trying to understand how we respond to unpopular decisions. The uh, Direct democracy, as Sherman has pointed out, is not necessarily the people talking. He's talking about the ways in which actually republicanism, republican democracy works. I'd like to make a separate point, which I think it ties in with the original intent of choosing republicanism over direct democracy in the first place. Right, when the framers went to Philadelphia and gathered at the Constitutional Convention, if you read the notes of the debates by Madison, not the Federalist Papers, which after all were propaganda to get the thing passed, if you look at what they said at the convention, they were not very fond of the people. They thought they were the mob, unruly, uh, incapable of being corralled to get to the larger public good. It was not a populist movement in the room. Uh, rather, it was a gathering to see if there was a way to fix the Republican form of democracy in the Articles of Confederation that had failed so spectacularly. Right? Our first Constitution was an abject failure. Our second Constitution was actually quite a success, and the answer to why is because of the tinkering with Republicanism. Now, Republican democracy is intended to filter faction. Faction was the word they would have used at the time for what we now call interest groups. And so the question is whether or not direct democracy, initiatives, referenda, however it happens, is capable of filtering factions in a way that moves public decision-making toward the larger public good, because that's the goal. How do you get to the larger public good? And the answer is that studies on direct democracy, even though it's been around in the United States since the late 19th century, the studies are not yet clear. But what we do know for certain is that interest groups play a rather significant part in both choosing what will be an initiative or a referendum and choosing how it will be framed and choosing how it will be explained to the public so that it is not like a candidate election, 
where the discourse and debate is over the character of the individual and where they stand on certain issues. This is just one issue, and it's being created and packaged by those who are either in interest groups or the political parties. So the, the kind of romantic notion of uh, public decision-making through direct democracy as being the people, the only role the people get, again, is in the voting booth. They don't really have any more role than they did with respect to those they were electing in the republicanism process. Uh, but now you have the additional problem that uh, the people are not in a full-time job in which their job is to try to figure out how to solve hard policy choices. Right? The, the data show that initiatives have decreased public spending. They tend to decrease taxes. At the same time, they demand more public services. Right? I mean, I think we can all understand that all of that is coming from individuals in the voting booth saying, well, uh, what's good for me today, as opposed to what's good in the larger public interest? I'm not in favor of higher taxes, by the way. That's not the point of that. Um, so the question is, what, do, what should we look at to try to figure out whether or not we think the decision should be made directly through the people, or we should have our elected representatives being, making them themselves? One is my concern about the capture of the process by moneyed interests, whether they are interest groups or whether or not they are parties. My second concern is rank majoritarianism. Right? One of the reasons that we have republicanism is a fear of majoritarianism, and that is exactly what the framers were talking about when they were talking about the mob. Right? Numbers do not necessarily dictate good policy. In fact, the vision at the time of the framing through the most brilliant of the framers, who would be James Wilson along with James Madison, was that we were setting up a system where individuals could contemplate through uh, virtuous lenses what the best results would be. That is not what you get in direct democracy. And rank majoritarianism, just counting heads, does not always lead us to where we want to be, that is firmly in the original intent of the Constitution. That is not a modern view at all. My third concern is that, you know, there's this, uh, the constant uh, characterization of legislation as sausage, right, which is in, an intentionally ugly uh, picture. No one thinks that sausage is a particularly pretty thing, whether they like it or not. Uh, I'm going to defend legislative sausage. When you have an initiative or a referendum, the voter goes into the voting booth and it's yes or no. And that yes or no has been crafted by either the parties or the interest groups. When a policy issue comes before a legislature, it's quite different because you have the intervening questions by the legislators, if they're doing their job, asking the hard policy questions about what's in front of them. It's not yes or no. Sometimes it's yes and no. And so you often get legislation that does not choose between the two ends of the spectrum, 
you often get legislation that is probably better than the, the, pros, the proposal that came in because in Sherman's uh, description, you actually get something that may well serve more people than either of the ends would have served, or you just get a better idea. I mean, there's just something intrinsically good about discussion, deliberation, and research. Now, let me emphasize, though, that's only when our elected representatives are doing their job, right? So at the end of my talk, I'll talk about, you know, what we do about that problem, because pretty often they don't. Uh, but the other way to assess whether or not this issue is uh, actually going to work toward the larger public good, the horizon we need, or not, is by looking to how each state that has direct democracy, and many do not, but a majority do, uh, what is the process? Once an initiative is in place, is it capable of being overturned in what way? In some states, you have to have another initiative. That would be California to overturn a previous initiative. In some states, the legislature has the capacity, after having watched it in action, to change it or to annul it to fix the bad and unintended consequences. Those are two radically different universes. Do you have to get up another initiative, or can you have a legislature watching and making sure that you're still serving the larger public good? Those are different structural uh, mechanisms in the states that determine very different results, and whether or not an initiative is going to lock in the answer. So one of the questions I have uh, is whether or not particularly problematic is the initiative that locks in constitutional guarantees and is very hard to amend, as most constitutional amendments are. Uh, that is a sort of initiative that usually would demand a much more broad-ranging uh, set of both deliberations, public debate, and soul-searching on the part of everybody. I think it's problematic that we would have – I hope that's your phone – Darn it. I, I, mine, mine only goes off in front of the Pennsylvania Supreme Court. <laughs> Twice. Um, Set your phasers I, only on my kids knew. Yeah, only my kids knew how to turn it off. It was a problem. So uh, I never took it in again. But so, so, so let's look at Kilo, actually, because Kilo is so interesting, because here you have a scenario where you have a very well-chosen case. It obviously has been chosen for a reason to go up to the Supreme Court little old lady in a house, and they're going to make her move out, and uh, eminent domain is being exercised in a really particularly brutal way. And the Supreme Court comes out and says she doesn't win. What's interesting about that case is the truth. And I know this because I was litigating a uh, case involving eminent domain for two survivors of the Holocaust trying to save their little place in Times Square, which was a 50-year-old business, and we had no chance. The truth at the Supreme Court was that what they said was really not much news. The doctrine had not been great uh, for the little old ladies with their houses up to that moment. But what Kilo did is it created a moment of education. So whether it was good law or not, the people and interest groups and the states all of a sudden paid attention. Had we gone too far down the wrong path with respect to eminent domain, had we done, we created a doctrine that was actually bad for the people. That was an excellent moment in American democracy, not whether or not you agreed with Kilo, but because it ignited this debate 
And it led some states to say, you know, if that is the law, and obviously it is now, the court said it is, we don't like that. What I like about that scenario, especially since it involves land use and local determinations, is that it increased the activity of states' rights, federalism. It increased our 50-state experiment on dealing with these issues. That I look at as a good result. And so while Kelo was widely criticized and probably deserved it, though we didn't depart very far from preceding doctrine, it was good for the country on a difficult issue that normally you would not be able to stop someone on the street and say, so what do you think about eminent domain, right? Their answer would be, what? Uh, so that educated the public. So there are Supreme Court decisions that are extremely important and do help education of the public. And if the, if the answer is to whatever the state system is uh, negative to that decision the Supreme Court came down with, that's not a bad result. I think it's especially not a bad result if you have a variety of answers. Because the experiment of the 50 states only works best when you have 50 slightly different experiments, or radically different experiments, so people can look around and pick out what works, what doesn't. Because so often policy that's chosen originally does not work. But another case that the Supreme Court came down with, which is not Greta or Aquilo, which was unpopular at the time, was a religion case, and that would be Employment Division versus Smith. Now that's a case where the Supreme Court said that uh, neutral, generally applicable laws apply to individuals. And I'm bringing up this one just as an example of how quickly legislatures can act, uh, and so that initiatives and public responses are not the only ways to respond to uh, publicly unpopular decisions. In that case, Congress acted for itself very quickly within three years, uh, passing the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which spoke directly to that decision, and then 13 states passed what we call mini-refers. Now, I don't think much of the RIFRA legislation, as anybody who knows me knows, but I do think it's a great example of the ability of legislators and legislatures to respond to unpopular decisions just as quickly as either public movement or initiatives can respond. And so what we have is a system in which we do have valuable checking and balancing mechanisms that work in response to the United States Supreme Court coming down with decisions that are not necessarily popularly received. I think that's a good thing. Elizabeth Garrett, a professor at USC Law School, has chosen what I view as a very helpful name for the process that we have which is we're, we have hybrid democracy. We don't have direct democracy. We don't have fully republicanism democracy. We have hybrid democracy. If you start understanding it's hybrid democracy, the question is always, are we reaching the kind of balance and checks that we need, again, to reach the larger public good, or is the balance not doing that? So let me just close with a few comments on our legislators. The... The key problem for republicanism and republican democracy is the following. This is what the framers said. They are vortices of corruption, right? That's the problem. 
anyone holding power will abuse their power. That is the fundamental Calvinist perspective of the convention. Don't trust anybody. So to the extent that direct democracy curbs power abuses by legislators, it is a good thing in curbing those inclinations. But think about this. There are plenty of states that don't have direct democracy. And the question that I think is most important there is why not? It may be because republicanism is actually working better in those states than it is in the states that have resorted to direct democracy. Some of our states have amended their state constitutions to increase accountability by their elected representatives. Three readings by a, of a bill so that a bill cannot be secretly pushed through the legislature. One subject rule so that you cannot pass a bill labeled uh, we love you and actually it's a tax increase. These are the kinds of amendments that you can resort to that can increase accountability and public knowledge. I think that we have been far too slow in thinking about constitutional amendments to increase accountability. And the place where we've been slowest is with Congress, where we have never enacted a structural amendment intended to increase accountability other than direct election of the Senate, and there is a good debate on whether or not that actually increased accountability or not. So, in conclusion, just let me say I think direct democracy has its very serious problems because it's just as capable of capture as the legislature is, but at the same time I do think it has its role in limiting uh, the legislature, but I would like to call for a more serious thinking about how we can make legislatures more accountable. Thanks. Mr. Connerly. Good morning to you all. I am um, somewhat awed by uh, being in the midst of all these professors and lawyers. Um, but let me um, just share with you my thoughts about the subject. I do not favor unbridled use of the initiative process. I recognize the inherent dangers of that. But I also recognize that there are times when representative government fails us woefully. John F. Kennedy once said that race has no place in American life or law. He was elected by the people. He uttered that comment in the aftermath or in the midst of one of the most tumultuous periods in our history. As a result of his leadership on the issue of race and that of President Lyndon B. Johnson, the Congress passed in 1964 the 1964 Civil Rights Act. That act proclaimed that all of us should be treated as equals, quote, without regard to race, color, or national origin. I'll repeat that. Without regard to race, color, or national origin. That's the people speaking through their representative government. 
color blindness, I think, is part of the DNA of the American culture. Colorblind government. Every time that we acknowledge the contribution of Martin Luther King, Jr. in January and February, the words that we hear most are his memorable words about judging people not by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Some quarrel with whether we are a colorblind society, but to me it's unmistakable that the majority of the American people embrace that view. Now, the Supreme Court, however, in 2003, says that the use of race is constitutional in the pursuit of diversity in the university. A direct contradiction a direct contradiction of the 1964 Civil Rights Act. What then are the people to do? Say, well, that's okay. We'll accept it. We'll enforce what the court said. We will make no protest. I don't think so. They will use, wherever they can, the legitimate tool to nullify, to nullify what the court ordained. In the Grutter decision, the court acknowledged that. They pointed out that in California and Washington State, the people had directly approved race-neutral measures to achieve diversity. The court acknowledged that. And so... I and many others have gone to the people and have used that tool to nullify the court's actions. Now, some say that, well, representative government is a better way of dealing with this. I would agree. Name one legislative body in our country that is willing to tackle the issue of race. Name one starting with the Congress. There was a bill introduced in the legislature of the state of Nebraska about a month ago, scheduled for a hearing about ten days ago. The author is approached by a coalition of Democrats and Republicans to not have his bill heard. Because if you do, they said, we will never vote for another one of your bills. So he pulls his bill. Representative government. Madam, please, you'll have, excuse me, excuse me. In a civil society, we can tolerate dissent. You'll have an opportunity to ask questions after the uh, presenters have made their... Just a moment. Quiet. You'll have an opportunity to ask questions. I ask that you allow all the presenters to make their initial remarks. Thank you.
an eloquent example of why the people have to go and do certain things themselves. Because that is the dynamic, my friends, that we see in the legislative process, in representative government, why legislators are intimidated and afraid to deal with tough issues, afraid to deal with them. And so, those who want to have certain issues heard have a very high threshold to reach in terms of the number of signatures, the time in which to get them, and then the issues are debated fully, single subject issues. You can't have earmarks in our initiatives. Single subject issues that the people have six months to a year to fully debate. Is it imperfect? Of course it is. Is representative government perfect? No, it is not. Do we understand the actions of our legislatures? Of course we don't. Rarely do we understand them. But I would argue that we have a better chance of understanding a single subject initiative that deals with one subject fully aired by the people, voted on by the people, than you do with a representative form of government on certain issues. Not unbridled use of, the, of direct democracy. But I think that the people have to reserve for themselves, and in some states, 24 they do, the right to say, when our legislature fails to act, and increasingly that is the case, we reserve the right to take action ourselves, especially when the courts overturn the action of the Congress or the legislature. If we don't do that, if we don't give the people the right to do that, then we're left with nine people making decisions that are in effect greater than the Congress itself, greater than the legislatures. And that's what we've seen with the initiatives that we have put forward. So I'll close with that. Thank you. Thank you. Now we will uh, give the members of the panel a, an opportunity to uh, interact if they choose to one another, but I do have uh, sort of an initial question. In my opening remarks, I posited the circumstance that I think happens all too frequently in our society now, and that is the the uh, increasingly roguish uh, actions of a oligarchic judiciary that intrudes itself into the policy-making arena, usually reserved to the legislature, either the, the state or federal uh, level, and, and constitutionalizes its policy preference to, to the two academics who are uh, at least skeptical of the uh, use of plebiscitic tools do you concede that when the, the judiciary intervenes in the, uh, 
the policy arena introduces its own policy preferences and constitutionalizes it, the initiative and referenda are really the only tools available uh, to the people to, to redress that. To answer that question uh, is the subject of much of the constitutional law course and more than we could do now, but it begins by challenging the premise. Of course, when you frame it that way, when the judges institute their preferences and constitutionalize them, what should we do? Well, immediately we see it as a problem that needs to be fixed. If you want to reverse that outcome pragmatically, there may be few choices other than a very difficult process of constitutional amendment, the federal level in effect impossible, or uh, direct democratic action of some sort. But of course the premise is the one we must spend a great deal of time arguing about. And indeed that's quite closely connected to the point we're trying to make <coughs> about what really represents the voice of the people? Just now, Mr. Connolly said, if the legislature refuses to act, the people themselves have to step forward. Again, there's the premise, right? The assumption that the initiative process through which they do that is a truer hearing of their voice than was the legislative process through which they decided not to do that thing, right? That's the very premise that we need to call into question. And more deeply, to assume that constitutional provisions are merely the views of judges rather than an alternative, longer-term, broader way of also hearing the people over time is to make a, a similar assumption, that clearly the, the people are speaking more clearly when they do when they speak through an initiative. It's a stronger claim with regard to long-standing constitutional provisions as to which current citizens have not had input and requires a, a more complicated, more thoughtful response than we have time for here. But that's the premise we need to question, whether the initiative really says, really represents the voice of the people better than the things it supplants. We can't make that assumption, even as to judges, and certainly not as to legislative inaction, I think. Well, I, I think when you have a case like Kelo that says uh, minimal constitutional rights, that you, the Supreme Court's opened the door to 50 states to change or, or to apply their constitutions. And so whether it's their policy preference or their reading of the cases or what, uh, I don't think that kind of decision actually calls for any kind of action or, or criticism because it does open the opportunity for the other 50 uh, constitutions to step in if, uh, if the decision is there. Whether you do it legislatively through the normal amendment process in the state or you do it through direct democracy. So I don't think direct democracy shows that it has any superiority in that context. I, I, I think that even when a Supreme Court case establishes what it treats as a high-level mark, for example, Roe v. Wade, uh, that still over time opens doors for 50 states to enact many uh, pieces of legislation at this point, of course, that modify and alter and uh, in some states undermine and sometimes strengthen the right. So that 
I mean, that is the, Roe, of course, is the case that's used for the concept of judicial policymaking, but the way our system works, nothing is static. So we have ended up with a process where in one of my columns for Find Law, I've actually said, look, repeal Roe at the Supreme Court, but the result won't be a whole lot different because the states already have set up so many statutory uh, principles around whatever the right was that we really aren't where we were when it was first uh, concocted. And so I, I think that the, the most important element is that direct democracy, as Ward has said, as Sherman has said, as I've said, has a place. It's just when is it an appropriate place? Let me just close with this. I think the direct democracy responses to Goodrich, the Massachusetts uh, gay marriage decision, are troubling because they were so swift. Uh, and when you're dealing with the issue of what should be family, what should be marriage, and what's going to happen to children, I think those are issues that deserve some extended legislative debate and discussion and thought. And so in a circumstance where direct democracy cuts off deliberation in that way, I think that is unfortunate. Entertain questions from? Uh, uh, do, do any other panel members wish to? Uh, will we entertain questions? Yeah. Questions? Yes. Uh, my name is Matt Owen. I'm a student here in Michigan, and my uh, question is for uh, Professors Clark and Professor Hamilton. Uh, the uh, sort of the gist of uh, Professor Clark of your uh, one gist of your talk seems to be that uh, you know, there's a kind of economic efficiency associated with uh, sort of public choice, that, you know, if you have X number of issues, that those issues that are valued most highly by the right number of voters will sort of effervesce to the top, and there's a, a certain amount of trade-off. So, but I wanted to phrase this in economic terms just to make the, the economic point that sometimes sort of the Coase theorem, which is kind of one way of expressing that, is hampered by the transaction costs associated with making those sorts of deals. And I wanted to know whether you thought there was any sort of analogy to a transaction cost that inhibits that process and whether in some cases direct democracy might be a re valid response to that. And then sort of as a corollary, one suggestion is that perhaps declaration of public values that doesn't require the kind of legislative sausage making that Professor Hamilton suggests, maybe that would be one, uh, one suggestion of when that might be appropriate. So for instance, if the people of the state simply want to tell us what's important to them, I'm not clear to me why an extended legislative debate is necessary in that point. So that's an excellent point. Um, uh, economic or more specifically public choice, the underlying theoretical point I call the priority problem grows out of some uh, early political science public choice literature in which they call it the intensity problem. I, I reframed it because I don't want to suggest that you caring an awful lot ought to give you more political power rather that we each should have our small but equal allotment of political power and be required and permitted to allocate that as we would, if we were to use public choice terms, by focusing it on those issues about which we most care. So, yes, that's a, a perfectly appropriate way to reframe the claim about the way in which the legislature hears an aspect of public will that direct voting does not. Your second point is equally strong. There are enormous transaction costs, most often larger in the legislature than in the direct democratic process. There are uh, concern, entrenchment concerns. Uh, there are obstacles to uh, being heard. There, there are voter turnout. There are uh, 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 
the way in which uh, districts are divided and gerrymandered, there are there are enormous costs. So I cannot, wouldn't make a claim that in some sense the legislature, as any any real legislature, creates some perfect or or um, optimal. How's that for an economic term? Um, some optimal measuring of the popular will. Uh, absolutely not. Um, so, so that's. But of course, so too is direct democracy imperfect in the way it often lacks deliberation, in the way money plays a, a large influence, in the way, in many of these ways, both are imperfect. So we imagine if we could get them both just right. It seems intuitive that direct would be better, and that's just wrong. If we could get them just right, legislative processes, though feeling frustrating, would allow us to speak much more clearly. On your final point, I don't mean to go on too long, but when you have three questions, you need three answers. Um, um, I'm sure our future questioners will have one question rather than three or a speech. Um, uh, but... Um, But on your last question about the way in which direct democracy or other political processes might serve to not so much decide concrete issues. And that's what happens when you tell your gay friends and neighbors they can't marry or when you when you ban or allow affirmative action. That's deciding a concrete issue in the process of which, though, you articulate something about who you are, and who you want to be. And I think our political processes absolutely should be thought about for the ways, and my most recent piece on direct democracy, Colorado Law Review, talks about that rather than these political theoretical issues. So you're absolutely right that there may be, that we should think about the choice between political process. Let me state it at this level of generality and then shut up. We should think about the choice between political processes, not just as vehicles for deciding concrete policy issues, but perhaps also as ways of constructing and articulating what we stand for, what we care about, who we are. So I agree with that. Could I ask, uh, why is, uh, do, you, do, you, uh, do any of the panel members not believe that judiciary has become an alternative forum for policymaking in our society, which has the least transaction cost of any alternative political action? Well, well except for the Supreme Court, where they only take 80 out of 8,000 cases. So. It's a transcendent <laughs> issue, I'm suggesting. I'm suggesting the judiciary as a whole has transformed itself into an oligarchic policy-making organ, which is an alternative to the majoritarian process that, that cannot escape the calculus about how policy in the society is now made. I mean, I would, uh, I'm going to answer the question in a minute, but I, I would emphasize, once again, the entire system, because no cog in this wheel, in this watch, which is the image the framers had, works independently. Uh, the, the Supreme Court, at least, seems to be operating within the very context in which it's now confirmed, which is searching for particular policy results, and those are the litmus tests for finding people rather than good judgment or good legal experience and those sorts of issues. And so I think the whole process, at least at the national level, has kind of driven itself, all of it, together to the result that you describe. Uh, on the other hand, I do think that there are plenty of members sitting on the Supreme Court right now who have no interest in changing uh, legislative results and are deferential to Congress in a number of circumstances. And so I, I think it's a mix. But I want to thank the questioner because, uh, you know, when I first saw the description of this panel, uh, it was so uh, packed with stuff, I assumed we were going to get eight hours. 
and where there's just impossible to cover all that's going on. One of the things that's going on is initiatives are when the people make decisions, referenda are another mechanism where uh, people are not necessarily making law depending on the state, but rather just telling legislators what they think. And it may be a more reliable way of informing your legislators than uh, the polls. Right? right now what we have is people express their views through the polls, and legislators hear what the polls have to say. I think it is very productive to have a referendum or to have any kind of public uh, expression through a political process where the people can say, yes, I think that's the way the policy should go, whether it's before or after the legislation was passed, depending on the state and how it operates. Uh, far better than polls. And so I think that's a, a, a very good use. But once again, it's, a, it's not the decision making. It's just the expression of the view. I certainly agree with um the statement that you made, um, I, I would not confine it, however, to the Supreme Court. I think that there are courts throughout the land that are taking it upon themselves to legislate. And uh, when that happens, I think that the only device that's available, not the only device, but the most effective device is, in fact, the initiative on foundational issues. I don't, I don't say that... Uh, the people ought to go out in mass and, and uh, put an initiative on the ballot for every subject. But on foundational issues, certainly I think that the, the uh, route of direct democracy is justified. That, that sort of begs a question about uh, what's foundational. But well, I yeah. think we'll go to the, uh, the audience for a question. Um, hello. I just want to say my name is Monica Smith. Um, I graduated here from the University of Michigan, and currently I'm a law student at Wayne State University, and I'm also a member of BAM, by any means necessary. And so I'm kind of going to be a Thurgood Marshall and Martin Luther King all wrapped up into one and more. But anyway, um, question. my question, I, I just have, um, I want to pose uh, two quick comments uh, to the panel, but especially for uh, Mr. Connerly. Um, one is I'm not um, completely against uh, ballot initiatives. However, I think that if an initiative goes on the ballot, it should be legitimate. I think that when you use uh, voter fraud, and especially racially targeted voter fraud, and uh, Judge Tarnow said that there was indeed massive voter fraud that went into getting uh, the MCR on the ballot, and also the Michigan Civil Rights Commission wrote a thousand-page document uh, documenting the different types of voter fraud. Um, that really questions and just totally makes illegitimate the fact that um, it's a valid ballot initiative. And what's your and, question, ma'am? And my question is, um, well, my first question is, uh, why, Mr. Connolly, when you knew that uh, standardized tests were completely biased um, against minority students, you took away uh, the only effective uh, program that could keep this university and other elite universities integrated by, why did you uh, take that away by coming into Michigan, a state that is, has an 83% white electorate, okay, giving have, the minority people no chance to, you know, speak for themselves, a majority white state to be able to take away the rights of uh, black students like myself to attend this university? That's my first question. No, no, you have one question. Okay. Let him answer it. First of all, the dicta of Judge Tarnow that our initiative uh, involved racially targeted voter fraud um, is an example of where I 
personally think that the that the court abuses its power. There was no study of our initiative and, and what constitutes voter fraud. Is it fraud for us to say to someone that the simple language of, quote, the state shall not discriminate against or grant preferential treatment to any individual or group on the basis of race, sex, color, ethnicity, or national origin? It is when you is say that, it. Just a moment. Let him oh. finish. Okay. Question. Is it fraudulent to say to people that that initiative does not ban all affirmative action? We argue it is not. It is simply saying that you cannot discriminate against or grant preferential treatment to any individual on the basis of those five prohibited factors. That's not banning affirmative action. And so the argument that we have defrauded people by not telling them that the initiative would outlaw affirmative action, which is an amorphous term that means different things to different people, there was no fraud involved. But the judge handed down that decision without ever conducting a hearing to make the statement that he made. It was a political decision. And just, just a moment, ma'am. You're going to have the next question. Okay. okay. That, um, All right. Just, just a minute. My second just question. a minute, ma'am. Go to the back of the line. No, one he has question three questions. I just no, have one more question. And my question is, standing in history, well, as we are just today, a moment, how exactly just do you think moment. that you're going to be able to be successful? Just a moment. If Excuse me. Slavery was put down by the abolitionist movement. Jim Crow was put down by the civil rights movement. And you will be shut down by the new civil rights movement. History is not on your side, my friend. All right. Thank you. Ma'am. Ma'am, do you have a question? My name is Joyce Schoen. I'm a BAM organizer and a second-year law student at Wayne State University. I think it's important to inject some reality into this discussion. Nullification is the, the grand call of the hardcore racist segregationists who attempted to prevent black people from getting the vote, from getting their rights and public accommodations, your call, Mr. Connolly, for nullification of Grutter is precisely an attempt to deny black and Latino students their right to be treated equally and to attend this university and others. Is there a My question, question is, as you stated under oath in the deposition in the Prop 2 constitutional challenge, which we hope is going to go to a full trial and the truth will come out about your, your policies, you stated you knew that there was only one black student that was admitted to the, that attended the Bolt Law School after the ban on affirmative action in California, and yet you still brought that initiative to this state where 83% white state in a racially polarized vote voted against the rights of the minority. Is there a question? Do you think that that justice? When I was, um, I, I didn't beat my wife yesterday, by the way, but uh, when I was deposed by the um, organization by any means necessary, and I shouldn't have to say more than that, but when I was deposed by them, when I was deposed by them, the question was asked, did you know that there would be a drop in the number of minorities at the University of California when you supported the elimination of, quote, affirmative action? 
my response. You'd have to be living on another planet not to recognize that there is a profound academic gap between black, Latino, and Native American students on the one hand and Asian and white on the other hand. Therefore, I certainly understood that there would be a short-term drop. But I certainly think also that black students and Latino students and Native American students are capable of reaching any bar that any white or any Asian could reach. Not when it's rich. And therefore... And Not when the system is biased and, and rigged against those students and runs them out. We know they're equal. We know we're equal. But if you set up a biased institutional gatekeeper, we can't get in. I was okay, going to conclude by saying that, Just a that, that the heavy lifting begins not with the elimination of the preferences. It begins with... Race, blind, outreach, it begins with tutoring, it begins with black students understanding that learning is not, not being cool. It begins with all of those things. It begins with all of those things, and we have a duty to try to help all of our students to improve so that that academic gap does not exist. I also added that in the aftermath of the, prop, the passage of Proposition 209, the gap in retention between underrepresented minorities and Asian and white in the University of California system has closed. The gap in graduation rates has closed. The number of black students graduating at UC San Diego has doubled since the passage of 209. I indicated that all of the, that the number, the percentage of black students at the University of California overall has gone up. Not just the actual numbers. The percentage has gone up because oh, the students That's are going to the campuses. The you students admitted the are truth going, in the deposition. The students are going to campuses down at, at which and they Berkeley. are competitive. I'm going to lie here and tell the truth under oath. Moderator prerogative and move to the next question. Hi, Simon Dowd from the Stubborn Facts blog. My question is not about the Michigan Affirmative Action. I'm sure you'll be glad to hear. Um, <laughs> But it is mainly directed at Professor Clark. Uh, Chief Justice Taylor reminded us yesterday, and uh, Justice uh, Young Wherever I am. alluded to it a moment ago, uh, that, uh, that for the last 50 years or so, the left in America has tended to advance policy through courts because it can't get it through the legislature. Uh, and you're kind of, uh, I think, correctly saying that the, uh, the direct democracy system is another way to do an end run around the usual process. Well, it seems to me that that's, that desire to do an end run around the process, because everyone feels that their issue is the exceptional circumstance, the thing that is so important that it can't wait to go through the normal process, and if they're not getting their way, therefore, the process is broken, right? So they're going to try and find some way to do an end run around the process. Well, if that's a universal instinct, is it possible that the, uh, that the referenda process can serve as a safety valve in, in this sense, at least, that if people are going to try and advance an agenda through the referenda, that's at least better than trying to advance it through the courts, or at least a little bit more legitimate, would you say? One question. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Yes, that, that's right. It is a universal impulse. The, the feeling that the issue you care about, especially when you look around and realize that a numerical majority of your fellow citizens agree with you, you can't help but feel that the system is broken as to your issue. So you should go around the system, especially if you can describe that end run as a core direct appeal to the people themselves with all the <clears throat> legitimacy that seems to bring with it. And so, yes, that is the way it is perceived, and I've, I've questioned that characterization. Um, in some ways, it is a safer end run than to go through the courts. Um, but in some ways, the, it's, it's not. And, and just tie this to your, uh, your endeared theme of the oligarchical judiciary. Um, that is yet another way in which the people are heard over time indirectly, more indirectly. So we have all these different processes. The most indirect is the appointment of judges by elected representatives. This feels very indirect. The less direct is, is the representative process. Most direct is, is direct democracy. And all those are various processes to which we try to hear the will of the people. So I, I embrace your characterization, and I'll even agree that in some cases uh, a direct democratic vote may be a safer safety valve than others, but in some ways it's not. Because given the assumption that majority will equals legitimate final word, it sometimes closes the book, ends the possibility of further debate on a particular issue, as though the, the Trump card has been played, and anything else would be to derogate from the will of the people. That's not what we feel like when judges make decisions. We feel quite the opposite, and the debate rages on, uh, with the possibility of change, at least, through new judges. So, Yes, sir. My name is John Walder. I'm a second year at Columbia. Um, Professor Clark, you made reference to a deal between the, you know, the people and through their elected legislators. Now, Mr. Connolly's group, in the few months preceding the election, was outspent five to one by the opponents. The school and the business community, including the big car manufacturers, came out against it. And yet, in a liberal state, it still passed with 58% of the vote. So it seems to me that these kind of things that are unpopular are being foisted upon the people by special interests. Now, do you think that's an unfortunate consequence of the deal or a necessary part of it? That's a great question. I, I of course, will question the premise. Um, uh, let's assume... Uh, no, let me grant, actually, your premise. Let's assume that a, a large majority of Michigan citizens, if asked, if asked what they think about affirmative action, would say uh, it should not be permitted. And I'm willing, uh, I am willing to attribute all, all the highest motives to most of those people, by the way. They've learned that the way they used to pick the quarterback by putting the white guy as quarterback, that was dumb. It was a bad idea. It was unfair to the players, and it uh, made you have a less good football team. And so they've learned over time that we shouldn't pick people in those ways. Now, I disagree. Don't get me wrong. I think affirmative action education is different, but I don't feel the need to attribute the motive of rolling back progress to those who question affirmative action. So let me assume that, that a substantial majority of people thoughtfully think affirmative action is long-term a bad idea. 
However, in the process through which they pick their representatives and the subsequent log rolling, that, that term has pejorative implications, but I'm trying to rescue it. The subsequent argument in the legislative process, it became clear that although only a relatively small percentage of Michigan citizens favor affirmative action, that's what they, even if, thank you, even if less than a majority of Michigan citizens favor affirmative action, they really care about that. That's what matters to them. And so through those processes, they've given up other things they might have gotten. They've given up other things they cared about and were able to secure inaction on that particular activity. That was the deal. That was the deal. You let us have some things we care about most, primary of, uh, among which is affirmative action. And we will accept, we don't like it, but we'll accept the fact that we've had to use most of our limited political power to secure that and give you most everything else that you want as you run this big, mostly white state. You win on almost everything else. We got this, though. You had to give us at least this. And then, that's the deal. didn't feel like a deal. It just felt like the frustrating process of being able to vote for a candidate that is not your ideal. But that was the deal. And then when the majority afterwards reneged, they betrayed that deal. They took back the little bit that the minority cared about most and had given up so much else to get. That would be my characterization. Anyone else want to respond? Well, you don't know that there's a majority until you vote. So we did not know when you put when you put an initiative on the ballot, you don't know what the majority is. You're going out, you're 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 fishing for votes. When the voters vote, then you have a majority. The suggestion that the majority was already preordained and that they went ahead and voted on a deal that they'd already made, I would question that premise. Um, because there is a, an interactive process here, and you're trying to say to the people, on this one basic view, the government should treat us all the same. And I would add parenthetically, this was not, in our case, this was not anti-affirmative action. It was anti-race, gender, ethnic-based affirmative action. The Civil Rights Commission, the Civil Rights Commission, in the immediate aftermath of the passage of Proposal 2, in its report said, this does not end all affirmative action, which was directly counter to what it had said the day before the election, by the way. But it's important to note that the majority is not determined until after the election or the election day. Okay. Yes, sir. My name is Neil Lyons. I'm a BAM organizer. And I wanted to make the point that democracy is not an abstract question. And the fact is, in a democratic state, you cannot claim any sort of democratic process when it, in effect, excludes the vast majority of black, Latino, and Native American students from the top public university in that state. Before affirmative action pro programs were eliminated at, at this law school... There's going to be a question at the end of this, right? Certainly. Okay. At this law school, 36% of minority applicants who applied were accepted. After the ban, only 5%. 
That's not democracy. And speaking of the popular will, 90% of black voters in the state voted against Mr. Connolly's initiative. And that was not a popular vote. That was a white vote against a black and, and Latino minority. And, and, and that's, that's the fact of the numbers. Okay. Now, Jim Crow segregation would still be in place in the South if it was put up to a vote there down back in the 1950s. That's why it took a civil rights movement to overturn that. And I just want to say it's a massive falsification of the Civil Rights Act to say that it prohibits affirmative action policies. It was the Civil Rights Act which was brought into being to realize the promise of Brown v. Board of Education to integrate places like this university and provide the opportunity for minority students to have access to this historically white institution. And, and I'll ask a question to this audience. Okay, come on, come on. I'll ask a question to this audience because Mr. Connerly is a fraud and a liar, and anything he responds with will be a lie. Just a but moment, I'll ask sir, a question for the sir, people here. Sir, do you really sir, think? Just a moment. Do you really think that in this nation, in which my generation has broken the racial and gender barriers to the American presidency, in which my generation will be the first to be a majority-minority generation? majority Latino, do you really think that these efforts to preserve an ivory tower at these institutions will hold up in the face of a new civil rights movement? I don't think so. You can answer that for yourselves. Thank you. Ma'am, first of all, do you have a question? Yes. Okay. <laughs> Ask it. Okay. Um, I just want to establish, like, my name is Leanna Mulholland, and um, I'm a third-year student at the School of Art and Design at U of M, and um, I'm also a representative of our, on our student government here at U of M, um, and I'm also a BAM organizer. And I just wanted to, um, I mean, just establish that I'm, like, you know, I, I hear the argument a lot um, against affirmative action, saying that it's, like, hurting poor white people. Well, Here's a poor white person who got in because of affirmative action, not economic-based, actually. It's because I went to Cass Tech, which is a majority-minority high school in Detroit, and, you know, faced some of the similar challenges in terms of an inferior education that you get in a segregated city like Detroit. And so I just wanted to kind of establish that in the context of my question. I just, I mean, I feel like um, Neil actually said some of, like, some part of my question, but I, I guess, you know, my biggest question is, you know, you said in um, your legal deposition for this case against um, Prop 2 that um, when asked, did you, um, did you think we were living in a colorblind society, you said, I'm not trying to create a colorblind society. I just want the government, you know, not to um, use, you know, quote, preference, um, you know, when, when letting people into hiring or universities. And I just feel like we don't live in a colorblind society. And, and I just feel like if, do you think that, um, if, you know, there had been an initiative to uh, eliminate Jim Crow in the South or to let someone like J um, James Meredith into an all-white university in the South during the era of Jim Crow, would, you know, the white majority, which it was a white majority, um, you know, would that have passed? And also, I just, you know, I just don't really know how you could have, you know, like a majority vote on the rights of a minority because I don't think that people's, 
I think the people's main intention was probably like, well, I really want my son or daughter to get into college, and so, you know, I'm going to vote for privilege, even though that's kind of wrong, because I'm thinking of my son or daughter or whatever. And so I just don't think, like, that's why it doesn't make sense. And so, like, I just, do you really think that if this was in the South and it was, like, Jim Crow that was being voted on, that that would be a fair vote? Because I feel like this is a similar situation. We live in a different time and a different place. How so? We have a multiracial man, self-identified as black, running for president, a very viable candidate. We have a we have a female running for president, very viable candidate. Senator Obama won Nebraska from one end of the state to the other, largely white state. I suggest to you that our nation has changed profoundly since Jim Crow. Changed profoundly. Just a moment, sir. You'll have a chance to ask your questions. Just a moment, ma'am. Quiet. It's experiences like a, these if, that well, make me question direct democracy, too. You have a question? Yeah. I, Just I, a I, moment. If you have a I question, come to ha- the mic. I have a question. I just, before I ask my question, because uh, it's kind of similar to Leanna's, I just have to say how amazed I am that in the year 2006, we could have a room full of people talk about the legitimacy of segregation and inequality, because that's all this is. This is a room full of people who are discussing why it's legitimate for a white majority to impose their will on black, Latino, and other minority people. And if you think that's not the discussion, you are deceiving yourselves. If you think you are not in a room where segregation is trying to be legitimized, you need to know that's exactly what you are doing. Try to legitimize the inequality of this society. And my question is, that inequality known as Jim Crow, was defeated. Not because white people all of a sudden got good notions that integration was good, but because the black minority imposed its will on this society through a movement. Why do you think that's not... Stop with the lights. But, but why do you think that's not going to be possible in this, our generation? Why do you feel so confident? And why do you feel that you are so justified to put forward measures that you know are supported on the basis of the privilege, of the inequality, of the racism of this society? Because to say that there is no correlation between Jim Crow segregation and the ban on affirmative action is a complete lie of reality. As that question, Leanna asked you a question, and you really didn't give an answer. What makes the measure of banning affirmative action, the policy of imposing the will of a majority to exclude the minority, what makes it different now than it would have been then in the 1950s and 40s when white people sure as hell would have voted for Jim Crow segregation? Tell me why is it different and why do you think you could get away with it? Because just to say, no, if no, we five, six just, people just, can sit here in a room full of people need, and still state questions. our claim, don't you think that we are determined to win by any means necessary? Why would you even want to put yourself against such a force? You know that you are opponent doctor. of this movement. This is a but question, answer the question. Man. Sorry. There's two questions. Okay. And I appreciate it. Okay, thank you. 
Next it was. Let, let me just let me you just ask answer the question. that you limit your question <laughs> to about 15 seconds and not uh, make it a filibuster. Your question, ma'am. Oh wait, you didn't answer the question though. Nobody has a response to it. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Okay. Nobody cares to make. So it glad the intellectual minds are working. I will answer that question, which has been asked in many forms. And I think answered in many forms. We live in a different time than Jim Crow. We, you, you folks may not believe it. You may not believe it. And I respect your right to believe what you want. And I ask that you respect my right to believe what I want. I think we live in a different. Please, please, please. So people who believe in segregation should have the right. I think we live in a different time and place than Jim Crow. Decidedly different. I think that most rational people understand that. Most rational people understand that. The whole idea of treating people the whole idea of treating people differently on the basis of their skin color or quote race, however we define that in the year 2008, is something that we as a people hardly tolerate, let alone believe that it should be enshrined in our laws. So I'm not the one who is out of step with history and out of step with our people. You are. With all due respect, you are. You are asking the people to accept the, the permanent division of our people into racial categories and to confer benefits on some and not on others solely because of skin color and race. The American people do not embrace that. The 64 Civil Rights Act does not embrace that. Proposal 2 of the Constitution of Michigan does not embrace that. We have another response. Just, May I... Uh, just a moment. Just a moment. Madam, Madam, please let the speaker speak. It seems surprising to me, but we seem to be caught in a highly artificial dichotomy as if the only two ways to describe the United States in 2008 is either as a world in which no progress has been made since 1950 or as a world in which all white people, whatever they do, are calculating some way to keep us down. Those aren't our two choices. That's not, that's not reality. I think that the arguments we're hearing if you let me, I'm going to help you. You're good, though, huh? The, um, the arguments that you're making can be made in a very strong and persuasive way. The claim is that the democratic processes should be allowed to work. And we're up here arguing in some perhaps too abstract and academic ways in, in some people's mind. <laughs> for how they should work, but one way to frame the point that I think I'm hearing is that we don't have a system which enables and encourages all of our citizens to hear and have their voices expressed. That a system that retains de facto segregation, a system that retains radically unequal educational systems, a system that does not give everyone an equal opportunity to understand, be a part of, and be heard through our political processes, 
is a system in which we may need to do other things than simply listen to what the people as a majority have to say. But the, the, the larger point is I, I can't believe that it, in this, at this level of discussion we're acting as though there are only two ways to describe the United States, as if nothing has changed or as if everything has. These are difficult and complicated issues we're trying to work through. And it's very easy, very satisfying to speak as loud as we can instead of as clearly, to attribute bad motives to to those on the other side because, because that way we don't, have to, we don't have to figure out how we might really solve these difficult problems. We could just point to them on the other side that are doing it to us. Uh, unfortunately, we might have had that luxury at one point in history when our battle was against a clearly defined set of folks trying to keep us down. What we've got now is much more complicated than that and much more difficult. It's real problems, real deep problems. But to, to give in to the temptation to oversimplify them in these ways, it can't be helpful. Can it? Okay. <laughs> All right, madam. Ma'am. Okay. Hello. My name is Christine Camardi. I'm a high school student who lives in Detroit. Yes, I am. What school do you go to? I go to DIA. It's an all-girls public school. Yeah. Uh, in Detroit, 34 schools were closed. And soon there will be even more closed. Now, I have moved many times in my life. I've lived in North Carolina. I've lived here. I, live in, I have gone to schools in the suburban, and I've gone to urban. So I know most of all the difference between the two. Now, Warren Connerly, you're trying to take away affirmative action. It needs to be equal. Well, when I went to a school in the suburb, trust me, it was much nicer. It was much different. And the difference wasn't just race. It was technology. It was the many of teachers and things of that nature. So if you're going to say that, you know, we need to get equal when we get to high when we get to college, make it equal when we start in preschool. Now, if you try that out, then maybe, you know, I could jump on that bandwagon too. But since you cannot, you know, go to colleges and go to my high school, because if you did go to Detroit and say the same mess you're saying now, trust me, I don't think you'd be walking out one piece. Please do not, please do not tell me, please do not tell me that I shouldn't go to high school, I didn't get the certain grades or the same, um, you know, test scores as some other people. Your question? Well, ma'am. my question is, is, until, can you change how school system starts when we get to preschool, then what happens when we get to college? Because the difference is phenomenal. That is why. Affirmative action is in place for a reason, because it is not equal when you start. So why should it equal when we start to almost get to the finish line? I don't understand that. Please explain that to me. Good question. That's a good question. Um, let me first of all restate that I am not opposed to all forms of affirmative action. Affirmative action began by John F. Kennedy as a tool for non-discrimination. 
his Executive Order 10925 commanded all federal agencies and those doing business with the federal government to take affirmative action to ensure that there was no discrimination. I support that. I support race-neutral outreach programs. I support looking at job descriptions to make sure that they do not have inherent biases against someone. I support socioeconomic affirmative action. I support making sure that we do not overemphasize standardized tests. I support efforts to reach out to underperforming schools. When we eliminated race preferences in California, what is not known very well is that the University of California has entered into contracts with 150 of the most underperforming schools in California. We are doing more affirmative action now than we did before. It's in a different form. It's in a different form. And I would hope that once the people say we do not want our citizens treated differently, that then representative government would kick in and figure out a way to make sure, along with the university, to make sure that they're reaching out to all people in this state, to make sure that they're helping those schools that are underperforming, rather than assuming that everyone who is black, Latino, Native American is therefore entitled to some preferential treatment in the guise of affirmative action. I'd like to echo Ward's call for uh, socioeconomic affirmative action. It is, uh, makes a great deal of sense. And let me just give you one example where I think it was pretty successful. My dad was a hillbilly, uh, literally. He lived on the borderline of West Virginia and Virginia. For Christmas, he got an orange one year. Extraordinarily poor. He was the beneficiary of affirmative action called the GI Bill. Now, he didn't do as well in, high, in college as he might have because he'd had a very hard upbringing. But I'm in favor of that line. If you've come from a difficult school, if you've come from a, a poor background, that is a neutral principle that can be applied across the board. And I find it offensive, frankly, to think that the line should be race rather than need. That's really what Ward's talking about. And I have to say he makes a lot of sense. Ma'am, do you have a question? Yes, I do. Um, and first of all. <clears throat> yeah. Please uh, make the first of all short. All right, okay, I'll make the, I will. I will. Just the, the first of all is just that um, with all due respect to the panel, uh, we are the only people in this room speaking the truth and bringing reality into this, this conversation and to this discussion. And the fact that you're trying to hinder us speaking that truth is the reason why we must speak louder. Because we need to speak the truth. Now, I'd like to frame the context of my question briefly. Uh, my name is Mari Cruz Lopez. I'm a Latina student here at the University of Michigan. I went to Detroit uh, Cast Techs High School. And during my senior year, while I was uh, studying for the SATs and the ACTs and applying to the University of Michigan's undergrad uh, uh, program, I was the only person um, who, you know, I, I had to take it upon myself to um, 
to basically sift through the application process, which we all know can be um, pretty hard if you have never done it before or if you're the first person in your family to go to college like I am or if your parents um, immigrated to this country and don't speak English, don't know the system, as well as um, other parents who have had, uh, you know, other, other people who have had parents and relatives graduate from college. Um, like I am a first generation uh, immigrant student to the University of Michigan. But while I was doing all of that, I was also um, helping to investigate the fraud and deception that was used to gather uh, proposal to signatures and place it on the ballot. One of the things, one of the many things that I've heard from no, people, I, I'm I, framing my question. Please do. Because we have a limited amount of time and we have a lot of people who want to ask right, questions. Right, right, I understand. But um, really quickly, um, one of the many things that I got from people was that many, many uh, people who signed the MCRI here in Michigan said that they were told by petitioners that they were signing something to um, defend affirmative action in Michigan, told that they were signing something to help black students and minority students go to college, to help increase free breast cancer screening for women, when in reality, by passing Proposal 2, all of those sets of programs have been challenged. And so, that in my opinion, the only way to get these types of initiatives passed in the first place and put on the ballot in the first place is to lie to people. Because if you tell them what it really is about, about uh, rolling back progress and, um, and, you know, bringing back Jim Crow segregation, then nobody would vote for it. Because even though Michigan is a white majority, there would never, you know, thousands of white people marching in the streets to uphold segregation and Jim Crow, the way there were thousands of people marching in the streets to demand that end. So do you think, here's my question, do you think then that it's democratic to have these types of fraudulent, deceitful, and flat out lies of initiatives on the ballot? Because I don't think so. I think it's a slap in the face. And I have a second question. Um, really quickly. Uh, because, like I said, we're the only people speaking the truth in this room. I, okay, okay. Well, then, do you think then that this is democratic? Because it's a really a slap in the face to democracy. Ma'am, there was no fraud. There was no fraud. You you believe that there is fraud because we went to people and we said this will not eliminate all affirmative action. It does. No, no. It does not end all affirmative action. It does not. And therefore, there is no fraud. Some have said it's fraudulent because we called it the Civil Rights Initiative. Civil rights belong to everybody, not just black people. They belong to everybody. Therefore, it's entirely, appro entirely appropriate for us to use the term civil rights. There was no fraud. And that's part of the argument of... All right. Thank you. Are you done? I'm done. Ma'am? Your questions. Hi, my name is Kate Stenvig. I'm an organizer with BAM and the Defend Affirmative Action Party and a grad student here in the School of you Education. have a question. Yes, I do have a question. Thank you. We have five minutes remaining, and yours okay. will not be the last one. Okay, well, I mean, you're taking up my time. So, okay, my question is, 
it, to the question of colorblindness and the points about the points that both of you made about whether you know our, the dichotomy of you know has our society made progress or is it just the same as it was before? My point is, and my question is, the if we live okay, Ward Connerly's campaigns in every state have relied on fraud, have relied on deception. We know that's not just a question of semantics. It's a question of people testifying and saying, I was told this initiative was for affirmative action when, in fact, it was against it. Not just that they were told it wouldn't end all affirmative action. They were told it was actually for affirmative action. Thousands of people who testified to that, to that statement. I was approached, told that. My dad was approached and told that. Thousands of people that we talked to. Okay, I just want to make that clear. The, the reason why that tactic has been used is because of the strength of the civil rights movement and the fact that there has been progress made and the fact that people did fight for integration and there have been gains made. One of those gains is affirmative action. And my question is, okay, if you are allowing yourself to be to be to deceive if you're deceiving yourself into thinking that you are fighting for something by ending affirmative action that you're fighting for color blindness why is it if if we live in a colorblind society today but you know and you've said if we end affirmative action pro programs we if we you know stop using race conscious policies that um, you know, the numbers of minority students on campuses like U of M and all other campuses are going to be driven down. Aren't you just saying that those students don't deserve to be here and are not, and that the reason why they're not performing, you know, as well on standardized tests, the reason why these criteria, the criteria at, you know, that the universities use to admit students, if you're saying, if you're saying there's a bias in those admissions criteria, then wouldn't you say there's something has to be done about that? If you're not saying that, if you're just really, saying look, that this is a meritocracy, okay, that this is a meritocracy, right. aren't you just, just saying that those I, students are in some way not equal? And I just want to say, I reject that notion, and I really hope everyone else does too, but I think you should be honest with yourself about what you're really, what you really Asked believe. Asked and answered. So that is my question. Thank you. Asked and answered. Sir, your question. Uh, Stephen Fair, Ave Maria. Uh, I have a question about fetal pigs. I think my coalition is decidedly smaller. <laughs> uh, I've spent most of my adult life in Florida, and several years ago, among many other things, they had a ballot initiative uh, that specified the size of cages that fetal pigs could be kept in. Um, I've heard a lot of discussion about some uh, some topics are good for uh, for ballot initiatives, some are not. If uh, my question for the panel, if you could design a ballot initiative system from the ground up, how would you do so to make sure that legitimate questions come before the voters, but uh, trifle questions do not? Well, that's, a, that's an interesting question, and it reflects the interesting challenge we've had today at this terrific session where some of us are here to talk about some academic issues, but other issues are rightfully and seriously on people's mind. And it's, it's 
not always easy to try to use a forum in this way to talk about so many different things, and I appreciate the, the energy and passion and the patience with which we've been able to do that. Um, your question brings us back to what may have been what, what was initially conceived as, as the idea of the forum. That doesn't mean, you know, debate goes where it goes. That's America. That's uh, good. But, um, uh, but to finish by answering your question and what will seem like the most tremendous denouement of the day, I would suggest that those issues about which particular groups have shown great passion are not well suited to direct democracy because they open up the possibility of betraying implicit political deals. I would suggest, perhaps contrary to the implication of your suggestion, that focused issues about which uh, people don't feel particularly strongly, those might just as well be decided by direct democracy because we don't have the possibility that some group has traded away their political capital to get a bigger pig cage. I'd limit that only by saying that highly technical issues are probably not well decided in that way, but also not particularly problematic. Thank you. Uh, we are at an end. I want to thank uh, each of the members of this panel for uh, a robust uh, discussion, including the members of the audience. Thank you very much.